Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you so much for um, having me here this morning. Uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Logan, for the privilege of worshiping with you all and uh, also bringing God's word for us. I was... Uh, I'm always very blessed with the uh, conversations I have with uh, Pastor Logan. We see each other in Presbytery, and sometimes he's at Christ the King Cambridge. We had lunch the other day, and just uh, the, the passion and, uh, and the commitment that he has for the church and for the truth is contagious. So I, I'm thankful to be here worshiping God with you all and bringing God's word for us. From what I gather... Um, in this Advent season, you've been studying biblical hymns and songs of praise that exalt God for his glorious plan of redemption in Christ. The Gospel of Luke is indeed uh, a particular book that is fascinating in terms of the expressions of worship that are directed to God in relationship both to the birth of John the Baptist and of Christ. And so after looking at some of those songs today, we'll be attempting to understand the message and ministry of the God-sent messianic herald who despite not having much to do with Christ's birth, had everything to do with the inauguration of his earthly ministry. As prophesied by Isaiah 40, the sole purpose of his whole life was to proclaim the most urgent message to the people of Israel in those days, prepare the way for the Lord. We'll be reading from Luke 3, verses 1 to 6, if you have it in your Bibles. Luke 3, verses 1 to 6. Word of God says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Eterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so full of limitations and sins and so much pride of my own that I feel unqualified to proclaim the glorious truths that are recorded to us in this passage. Therefore, if it's not by your grace this morning, we will leave here empty. But if your spirit decides to visit us through the preaching of your word, oh, may our joy and the strength in God overflow from our hearts that our whole lives would be transformed by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Zechariah, the priest, according to Luke 1, was serving God in the temple. He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense that year. And while probably under control of the minute details and everything in relationship to his priestly duties and routines, he could never have predicted the interruption of a sudden and unexpected wondrous sight. It was the angel Gabriel himself who came to announce that he and his wife, which was barren and of old age, would have a son. And he would be, verse 15 to 17, great before the Lord for Says Gabriel, as predicted in Malachi 4, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, of whom Christ affirmed that John may be compared to in Matthew 11, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. John was to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. And since he was to be the voice who cried out in the wilderness, it is not surprising that in verse 80, Luke's, Luke's final note on the whole of John's life up until adulthood around 30 years of age, is that he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And I'll give you three general headings as we navigate through the structure of this text. Now, first we have... John's prophetical call 
As it is said in the Old Testament of other prophets, the word of God came to Jonah. The, the word of God came to Jeremiah. So Luke says in verse 2, the word of God came to John. And then we have John's prophetical ministry. He went into all the regions around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we have a description of where he went and what he did after his prophetical call. Thirdly, we have John's prophetical message. He is the voice that cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight, all the way down to verse 6. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. So first we have John's prophetical call. Now, here, by all means and purposes, was a, a desert man. <laughs> An unsophisticated, a curious, unsmooth personage, very strange, long-haired, Nazarite, wild man type of guy. Both Mark and Matthew point out the strangest, the strangest of the men who wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Nothing too classy, nothing seemingly powerful or mighty at first. Nothing intimidating or influential in relationship to his ascetic manner of life. No, no external signals of his being adaptable to the traditions and, and social standards of his time. He didn't seem to fit much into the, the formalities and, and conventions required by the religious establishment of his day, which would eventually qualify him for some kind of title, no indication of his being conformed to any of the extra-biblical, rabbinical traditions some have associated him with other religious groups of the desert, but truth be told, according to the scriptures, Luke 1.15, this man was a product of someone being filled by the Holy Spirit since his mother's womb. And Luke, the careful historian that he is, you know, with due diligence will be consistent with his style. And in presenting in verse 1 and 2, much detailed information about the political and religious background that only served as a platform of which, in God's eyes, John the preacher took center stage. It was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Atrian, Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. Notice that Luke, inasmuch as we ought to know something about these men, he is not giving us permission to embark upon a series of history lectures about these influential personages. His point is only to say to Theophilus, it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, roughly around 28, 29 AD, the real important and significant event that would shape the course of redemptive history and go off in his gospel is his emphasis. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. Right here and now, Luke is only wanting to say, Theophilus, these are the people that governed at the time. But please keep your eyes on this man, John. Because despite his not being ranked amongst the influential and wealthy and powerful and famously distinguishable personalities that occupied the governmental structures and religious ranks of the time the word of the Lord came to him, which reminds us of what Pastor Logan so powerfully preached when Mary sings that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Not only did the word of God not come to them, but four of the names that are mentioned here, Pilate, Herod Antipas, Annas, which was the power mind behind the official high priesthood of Caiaphas, they were directly responsible for the death of the very incarnate word of God himself, namely Christ. And so the spotlight of redemptive history shines on John, the nobody who received the word of God in the middle of the desert. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in his presence. So after the word of God came to him, maybe in a vision, I, you know, I kind of wonder 
how it, how it happened. Maybe in a vision, maybe a theophany, a, a sort, a dream, some sort of angel with the message, whatever may be the case. The marching orders seem to be very unusual and specific. What did he do after his prophetical call? Verse 3 gives us a description of John's ministry in terms of location, method, and message. So first we have John's prophetical call, which teaches us God's desire of using those who are weak to the world but strong in him. Second, John's prophetical ministry. He went into. Now he didn't get paralyzed by his disadvantages in comparison to other people who were more powerful and in a better position than him. For him, it didn't matter who he was. For him, it didn't matter where he lived. For him, it didn't matter his own personal background. What mattered was that the word of the Lord had come to him and he went into all the region around the Jordan. Now the geographical bounds described here makes reference to the whereabouts of the Jordan Valley. It occupies 70 miles alongside the Jordan River. You guys know this river, right? The one that uh, Israel crossed to conquer the promised land. Elijah crossed it to go up to heaven. And the uh, greatest person that ever lived was, was baptized in this river by John. So here he is, 70 miles alongside the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee to the north, you know, and the Dead Sea more near Jerusalem to the south. He is traveling all over the place, back and forth, doing what? Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John is a spokesman a mouthpiece. John is a mighty preacher of God who is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, whereby the baptism would function in John's method as an external sign of the inner genuine repentance therefore resulting in forgiveness of sins. He did that very strategically alongside the Jordan River where, you know, where candidates would be readily baptized by him. And uh, some of you uh, got my little joke with my gesture there. You know, I did it for Pastor Logan, but he, he ain't looking right now. <laughs> Pastor Logan, us not... You know, Presbyterian stuff. <laughs> Not, you know, well, okay. I guess he did it both ways. It doesn't really matter, but I tend to think it was. <laughs> so this is a general summary of where he went and what he did. You know, but notice 
and interpreting the description of Luke in light of the other Gospels and what he himself says on, on verse 7 of, of chapter 3, that saying that he went into all the region around the Jordan did not mean at all that he had left the wilderness and was searching for more populated areas and urban centers where he would supposedly have a better chance of being heard. No, the spiritual authority of this herald and the might of this desert man was so great and the supernatural power that he had was so impactful that it was the people who left the comfort of the cities and of their homes to come and hear the word of God in the middle of the desert. Luke 3, 7 says that crowds came out to be baptized by him. Mark 1 says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And here, my brothers and sisters, is a truth that applies to all proclaimers of God's good news. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. Second Chronicles 69. God desires not better strategies, not clever methods, but better hearts. He desires to show forth his strength through us, but he's looking to know if deep inside we're prepared. We're cleansed if we are seeking Him, His face with commitment and holiness. And so there was John, sinful, yes, wretched, yes, fell short of the glory of God, yes, devoted, yes, holy, yes, committed to the truth of God that he passionately proclaimed, but also let it sink into his soul as he himself was daily strengthened and transformed, yes. And so our concern should not be primarily with the demonstrable effectiveness of what we do for God before men, but of our character and personal life before him. John was a powerful preacher because God had shown himself strong through him whose heart was righteous before him.
Even now, he says, Luke 3, verse 9. I mean, if we, go to, if we were to go to verse 20, it gets hot. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Matthew 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew, Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance. There's a theme for us to talk about for a long time. It's to be distinguished from a superficial feeling of remorse or a momentary need, I would say selfish need, of a guilt-free conscience. No, inner, genuine grief and hatred of sin, a turning unto God with the purpose of submission to His law and obedience to His will was necessary in the Old Testament dispensation in the context of John's baptism, and it is still necessary today as an inevitable fruit of new birth and saving faith, thereby required by God for all of those who desperately feel their need of forgiveness and reconciliation. The message of John still stands. Repent and change your lives for God. If you're listening to me today and um, you're not a Christian, I'm at risk, you know, of saying this because uh, of the time of the year. Normally the churches will have uh, mostly Christians at this time. But if you are not a Christian and you are listening to me, I want to invite you to let go of the burden of sin. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ where he himself Paid the price for all your transgressions. Repent and believe. John says, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. You know, the good news of the gospel is this. It doesn't ask you who you are. It doesn't ask you what you've done, the color of your skin. It doesn't pick and choose the ones that are worthy. There is no criteria of initial moral excellence, rather of subsequent moral reformation. The issue is only one. Has the Holy Spirit so irresistibly worked in your heart that you have come to a place of repentance unto life? To you there is salvation 
and forgiveness of sins by faith in the gospel. It is Christ himself who says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, having said that to those um, who have, doesn't, don't know Christ, remember, John was preaching a baptism of repentance to the Jews. To the covenant community, the church of its time. And the Jews would have normally applied according to, you know, in intertestamental evidence. They would have applied this religious rite of cleansing to Gentiles that wanted to convert and enter into Judaism. And, and such was the indictment of John that he was called to convince the church that they were no better than the outsiders and just like everyone else, they also were in desperate need of repentance and cleansing. And so are we who are in Christ called to repent daily as a consequence of the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit. So here comes John in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 with his enthusiastically charged style, spiritually authoritative, energetically demanding, loud, disturbing, and penetrating preaching message, crying out to the crowds in the wilderness, prepare your way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Said John. I apologize for the reenactment. But this is to the least exactly how I imagine that John preached in the desert, to the least. If I didn't have a microphone, you'd be deaf right now. <laughs> this was the man. He was crying out. This is not, hey guys, um, let's talk about uh, the person of God here. Let's go down to the uh, person and work of Christ and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the nature of the church. And then now we'll uh, finish with uh, eschatology. These are great things. I love it. But wait. We have to be passionate for the lost. They, they need to understand us. It's not just a concern of being orthodox and historical and biblical. It's a concern of having a heart and the passion for those in need of Christ. 
So we have John's prophetical call in verse 2. John's prophetical ministry in verse 3. Now John's prophetical message, verses 4 and 6. Which, as I said in the beginning, is a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. And with the time that I have, you know, uh, as we try our best to understand how Luke wants us to see the role of John as being the one who fulfills this prophecy, we ought to remind ourselves that in its original context, when it was written, it is the prophecy in the book of Isaiah that begins a new section of messianic blessings and kingdom promises right after 39 chapters of judgment and doom. Sporadic oracles of hope here and there, but predominantly judgment after judgment, chastisement after chastisement. And here is how surprisingly, after, you know, just scourging his people, the chapter 40 where John the Baptist is mentioned starts. Comfort. Comfort. Says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So drastic is the change in, in thematic emphasis and literary style in the beginning of chapter 40 that some liberal scholars have ascribed this second half of Isaiah from 40 to 66 to another author. It isn't another author. The same God who exclusively out of his paternal Love and compassion scourges his children is the God who restores them to a state of victory and hope for all of those who repent. This is what Isaiah says throughout the second book, the comfort section. I, even I, am the one who wipes away your transgressions for my sake and I will remember your sins no more. Chapter 49, but Zion said, the, the Lord had, has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. How is this even possible? How can a holy God wipe away my transgressions and not abandon me for my sins and lifestyle? The answer to your question is found also in this comfort section of Isaiah in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the Lord laid 
the chastisement that brought us peace. Christ is the answer. So the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, is bringing a message of hope and restoration that echoes through the ages of church history and the years in the hearts of every Christian that God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has come in flesh and proven once and for all by his own determination and sovereign will that he has not and never will abandon his people. John, as in ancient times, heralds would be sent in the name of the king prior to his coming so that the local population would have enough time to gather royal road builders in order to pave a way that would correspond to the glory and the merits entitled to the king. John is sent by Christ to announce, prepare the way. Make his path straight. The king is coming. There is a lot of figurative language here. All valleys shall be filled, mountains made low, crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. All of this figurative language for the removal of all obstacles. The ripping out of sinful roots. The kicking out of prideful stumbling blocks and obstructions. Rich in real life is what genuine repentance, always resulting in newness of life, does for fallen sinners spiritually. So I invite you, roll out the red carpet. Pave a way for him inside your heart because as urgent as his inaugural ministry was in the time of John, so is his second coming in our day. Revelation 22, he says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Then, as predicted in verse 6, then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Zechariah was right about John. Luke 176. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, preparing his ways. And such as John, we are ambassadors of Christ, representatives of the new covenant, and his blood that was poured out for us with the same boldness and dependence upon God. We herald with great power the same old message, prepare the way. Get your hearts ready because our King is coming soon. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our, uh, our desire was to uh, visit John in that desert this morning.
We wanted to get a sense of the powerful preaching that he had, and we want the Spirit to apply it in our lives. We learned with John that, that you use the powerless. We learned with John that we ought to repent of our sins before you. But we also learn in John that as the church of the present age, we ought to be ready for the coming of our King. And we have the responsibility of taking this message to others so that they would also be awakened to the reality of the gospel. We pray you do these things in, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.